I quite like the naturalness of, you know, uh, having a conversation and, and one person getting, you know, completely going completely off on a tangent and then forgetting whatever the actual theme was and then having to go back and find it again. I mean, it's very, it's very Virginia Woolf, but it's also very <laughs> great. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not super formal. I think if I tried to be very formal, that wouldn't be me and that wouldn't be authentic. <laughs> Hello and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, whatever that means now, and I'm finding it difficult to do nothing. At the time of recording, we're in our seventh week of official lockdown here in the UK, and I think I started isolating one week before that, so make it eight weeks for me. Earlier on in lockdown, I, like many others, had perhaps lofty ambitions of what to do with all my newfound free time. Can anyone listening relate? How many have you heard from the following? I'm going to learn a new language. Guys, look at my sourdough starter. It's so gross. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'll subscribe to yours. Check out my acapella video. I'm going to perform a movement of a bark suite every day. For me, currently, I'm obsessed with my vegetable plants. The victory and pleasure lies in not killing them. But that aside, while it's a blessing and privilege to feel like I have adequate space physically and mentally to pursue these hobbies, I find the shame of non-productivity hangs over me all too easily. Sometimes I feel like I should be doing something more productive. It can vary depending on the activity. For example, I've been grappling with growing a limited selection of vegetables to keep things under control. And now that that's going okay, slash they're not dead, little voice in my head says, grow more stuff. A couple weeks ago, I did an online recital. Now that that's over, little voice in my head goes off again. Do another one, practice more, learn a concerto. Made fresh pasta the other night. Just a simple fettuccine. Little voice pipes up once again. Now make tortellini. <sighs> Problem with having a brain like this is that it makes it difficult to switch off. And when I do try and switch off, I feel bad. Is this a musician thing? I feel like we set incredibly high standards for ourselves during our training and throughout our careers that it's natural for it to bleed into other aspects of life. One of the wonderful things about music is that it encourages you to self-evaluate and strive for improvement, which constantly evolves our art so that we keep the passion alive. But when a global pandemic throws you a challenge where your goal is to merely stay at home and continue to exist, much like my vegetables, it can feel like you're lost at sea. What am I working on? What am I working for? Surely I can't just sit around all day and watch videos on YouTube. This feels wrong. I don't have a solution to how I feel, apart from that I need to remind myself that if I don't feel like doing anything, just don't. It's like the opposite of the Nike slogan. Just do it. Don't do it. There'll be time later. If you're feeling like today's going to be a day where you just need to stare at the wall for a few hours, then do that. You're probably not going to produce your best creative output in that state of mind. And who knows, maybe tomorrow you'll leap out of bed and do all the things that you put off before. And you'll do them with such panache and flair because you're in the right mood for it. Or, you know, last minute panic, which is definitely a thing. My guest this episode is Jessica Cottis, a conductor and lepidopterist. 
we talk about her struggle with personal injury, parallels between music making and other disciplines, such as law and butterflies, and find out what podium technique they don't teach you at conducting school. You can't see me, but I'm stroking my chin. Have a listen. Jessica Cottis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today remotely. It's a pleasure. So here we are in lockdown, the new normal, and it's been a very, very strange five, six weeks. I've lost count. I don't even know. Can you tell us, what does a conductor do during lockdown? What have you been up to this week and how is that different from what you'd be doing normally? Yeah, well, look, it's weird. It's really weird because as a conductor, we don't actually make sound. We need our musicians, orchestras to collaborate with, to work with in order to bring music to life. So as a conductor, it's like, Actually, at the moment, being a conductor is an abstract concept mm. because we aren't, we aren't anything without our musicians. Yeah, it's like you don't have your instrument. Exactly. Precisely. Great, great analogue there. So for me at the moment, what I'm doing uh, instead is I'm doing a lot of writing about music my insights in particular pieces of music and, and what pieces of classical music really ignite my brain and my heart. Because I think as, as conductors, you know, in a way, we are hired to think. Mm-hmm. It's our intellectual energy, that kind of imagination and intellect that comes together uh, in the preparation for a score to come to life. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. Actually, I'm also preparing for 2021. I figured, you know, if it's going to be eight months or so till, or even more till we have orchestral concerts going on again, then I may as well use this time to really uh, enjoy having the space to learn some of the repertoire for next year. So I've been spending a lot of time at the moment with Penderecki's Third Symphony and also Walton, uh, William Walton's First Symphony. And I've really enjoyed having, having the space uh, to do that. In a way, it's sort of a blessing, isn't it, to have that time? Because I imagine with works as complex as that, you wouldn't want to try and learn that in a hurry. No. I mean, look, it's possible to learn music very, very fast. You, you develop um, kind of muscles whereby, not actual physical muscles, but I guess brain muscles. Is that even a thing? It is now. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> brain muscles in order to uh, learn things uh, very, very quickly. And it builds on the knowledge and builds and builds and builds. So it is possible to learn super fast. But these are huge works, particularly the Penderecki, which is full of so, so much history, Polish political history, and I guess also emotionally with the levels of understanding of grief and and hope and love and so on it's quite poignant in a way for this time i find so is there's a kind of almost emotional space that these pieces need and we have that space at the moment and as a conductor normally you know we're zigzagging all over the world it's a really kind of restless lifestyle maybe one week in sweden the next week in in london and then off to america uh, maybe to australia so you know there's a lot of travel and this is a time actually of enforced reflection every day the news is awful it's just so tragic actually and 
on the other side of that is this quiet time where where we can sit with our thoughts and we can sit with music in our head as well. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, reflection. I've been reflecting on what makes me really lucky in this world. Yeah, it's, it's been a luxury just to have that space. I know I feel it's a bit of a privilege to be in that position. So how does it feel? You mentioned traveling all around the world, being in Sweden one day, then London, then maybe Australia. How does it feel being confined to one location? for the next few weeks? Well, I think, look, if there's a rationale for something, anything's possible. So I guess part of me misses the buzz of traveling, of going to new places, of meeting new people. You know, each orchestra is a different organism, a different personality, and and that's really exciting uh, and quite exhilarating. I love traveling and being in, in new places. I find it very inspiring. Um, so I do miss that. But on the other hand, you know, there's a, there's a very strong reason why we should be staying in the same place. So it is what it is, and I, it's temporary for a while. So for me, it's okay. Um, we are very privileged, yeah, lucky, I guess, that we live quite near Holland Park Gardens. They're just beautiful to walk around once a day. And um, it's nice at this time of year, early spring. So I have a kind of a dual interest in um, butterflies. So it's amazing uh, at this time of year, there are, there are lots of early spring butterflies out in some of the natural uh, flower beds that, the, that they've planted there to encourage wildlife. So that's been really actually for me, very, very uplifting and um, very meaningful actually. I suppose in a way it's a blessing being in lockdown in spring going into summer as the weather's getting nicer, whereas being on the other side of the world in the southern hemisphere going into winter really hunkering down, it's a completely different vibe. I actually knew that you had an interest in butterflies. I think it's probably because, well, you have a lot of friends in common, I think. That's why I find it amazing that we've not actually met each other before. We've not worked together, even though we have so many mutual friends. And I think we just missed each other in Sydney because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were working with Sydney Symphony Orchestra? Yeah. So I was their assistant conductor at Vladimir Ashkenazi. Oh, it was a while back, 2012 to 2014. Uh, That's when I just left. I, I think I left to come to London in 2013. So I was in Sydney 2009 to 2012, basically. Yeah. And I joined Sydney Symphony towards the end of 2012. So you're Australian and you're British. Whereabouts exactly are you from in Australia? Uh, It's a very good question. (laughs) Uh, Well, I, I don't really know, actually. Well, I mean, in terms of, I know where I was born, but emotionally, where am I from? I'm not really sure. I was born on an Air Force base, actually, in Victoria, so in East Vale. And then uh, just a few months later, my father was posted to Washington, D.C. So we, I grew up initially in America. And then we came back to Australia. My father was, um, he was then working uh, as a military attache. So we came back to to Canberra. And I guess Canberra is kind of my my home, really, even though I wasn't born there. Uh, because every time we went abroad because of my father's work, we would then return to Canberra. Mm-hmm. So that was your base. I classify myself as a Canberra girl. Oh, Canberran. Is that what, yeah. what they say? I've been to Canberra a number of times, actually. It's a very nice place. <laughs> it's very flat, isn't it? And um, well, I recall the lake, Lake Burley Griffin. Yeah, there are two lakes. Are there two? Yeah, <laughs> you need to brush up on your camera, Cameron. I'm, I'm clearly due for another visit. 
<laughs> Although who knows when that will be. So being a Canberran, tell us about your musical journey. What led you here in London, all the way from Australia via America? I know there have been some bumps along the way as well. Yeah, so, I mean, my musical journey started very shortly after I was born because my mother was um, a very fine amateur pianist. And so I, I had a, apparently a very big interest in the piano. And so I learned to play a few notes, a few tunes, really almost before I could speak properly, um, sitting on her knee. And, and that was that, really. Uh, I went through my childhood as a pianist. I, I played trumpet. I played French horn and played in youth orchestras, all of those things. Went to the Australian National University to study uh, musicology and organ. And then that opened lots of doors for me, actually. Um, I then came over to Europe uh, on a scholarship. I studied in Paris for a year as an organist uh, with Marie-Claire Alain. And then just basically started developing my career as an organist, um, working here in in London, actually, uh, a, a church in central London, and working a lot as a soloist as well for, for a number of years. And then I guess... Uh, I don't know why, but I developed something called carpal tunnel syndrome, which for those those people who sit at computers a lot, they probably know this. It's when the lining of the, the nerves that run through the wrist get inflamed. And so the nerve impulses can't move freely. And what it means is that a couple of your fingers lose the ability to move properly and you lose the ability to feel properly in those fingers. Now, fine, you know, it's, it's not a disastrous kind of illness, but it actually meant for me as a keyboard player, I, I no longer could play. Yeah. So when you found that out, what was your reaction? What were you thinking at the time? I mean, it was like everything came crumbling down. You know, for me, music was something that it was a language before I used actual language. And so we often underestimate those things that we don't think about, that we just have naturally as uh, that we experienced from, you know, the age of two or whatever. And I think I hadn't realized this, but music was that to me. And so when I lost the ability to, to play properly, it literally was devastating. It was, it was quite a, a low period for me. And I really had to question what I could do. You know, did I push forward and try and keep trying to play, which was devastating as well because it wasn't to the standard I wanted, or did I, did I go and study something else? Yeah. But I imagine that as an organist, playing the organ is just such an all-encompassing activity, isn't it? And it really sets you up with such a diverse skill set for so many musical activities, even, as you say, if you can't physically move your fingers. I'm just in awe whenever I see organists and it's physically, I just think, how are they doing all that stuff with their hands, with their feet and reading and improvising and also thinking about what they're going to have for dinner later that evening. So then from there, uh, how did you go with your physical injury? Did you think about physical therapy at all? And how did that eventually lead you into conducting? Yeah, well, I had all the treatment. Obviously, one has to try, but nothing really worked. Nothing solved the problem completely. Uh, So I, I took a bit of time out. I reassessed what I could do. And I thought, well, if I can't play music to the highest levels, then I'd prefer to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so I went and studied law for a bit. Really? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
law is really fascinating. And it, it always had been something that I was interested in. I mean, there are just so many interesting things in the world, right? If we had four lives, then we could go and study lots of different things. So that was, the, you know, I felt like that was something that could be really rewarding as well. Okay. I clearly didn't expect you to say law. That's why I had that reaction. But I think it's a parallel for the times that we're in now, isn't it? Where basically all these musicians around the world are suddenly finding, oh, I can't perform in the way that I would like to or in the way that I'm used to. I've got to find other skills that I can utilize or other ways to perform. So maybe there are some other musicians studying law as well. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are actually. And I, I know quite a few people who've actually worked as lawyers and then decided to to go back to their music and become professional musicians. It would be really fascinating uh, if there was some kind of, you know, there are studies between maths and music. You know, law is a lot about language and the parallels between our ability to create associations between, you know, particular words or particular sounds is there are, there are a lot of parallels. There's, there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. I'm fascinated by parallels um, with non-musical pursuits and musical pursuits because I feel like everything you do in life informs everything else. So everything that, everything that you do, you know, your law studying, butterflies, I'm sure you find a way to bring it into your music making because, well, in a way, music, as you say, is a language and we're finding ways to communicate. And the more language that we can add to our palette, then the better, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about ways of being, really, and how we understand. It reminds me, actually, of, I think, is it Proust who says, when we go and visit somewhere, you know, obviously, it's, I'm going to paraphrase this really, really badly, so apologies to all the Proust scholars out there. When we go and visit somewhere, you know, it's very exciting. But when we go back to the same place, if we've got open eyes, then we see everything afresh. And that can be even more poignant than just seeing something for the first time. And I, I think, you know, taking that as a concept, it's this ability to see the world in different ways and actually experience the world in different ways, even if ultimately it's the same thing. It's a joy that we get when we listen to the slow movement of Mozart's 21st piano concerto could equally be the joy that we get when we see a flock of swans in formation flying above our heads. So, you know, these, these things are, are very intertwined. Mm. And in a way, it's a method of keeping things fresh totally. because of so much of the repertoire that we do that gets done over and over again. How do we keep it new? How do we keep it exciting? How do we keep it vibrant? You have to have all these new insights. Yeah. Yeah. So following law... How did you end up being a conductor? How did you end up on the podium? Yeah, so look, law was fascinating uh, and very intellectually invigorating, and I loved that. But a large part of me was kind of, I felt like I wasn't entirely being myself. And I kept thinking about music, actually. Just, it just I, couldn't, I couldn't walk away from it that easily, I guess. And I was in Vienna, actually, visiting a friend who was studying voice at the conservatoire there and we went to the state opera in Vienna a couple of times every week on these student price tickets it was like six euros for oh. row three seat at Vienna State Opera it was amazing and extraordinary performances you know wonderful singers amazing orchestra it was like totally overwhelming and I'd never experienced anything like that before like that kind of immersiveness of uh, musical quality over, you know, night after night. And there was one performance, it was, it was Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, and 
something happened that evening. It, I, it was kind of like, you know, whatever the musical um, life force I had in me, it was restruck. It like literally like striking a match. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, a match sitting in a box, strike it, and then it was a flame. And, and it, it was literally kind of one of those moments. And I thought to myself, I have to continue this. And, you know, here I am watching an opera. I can't use my hands properly anymore. So literally I have two choices. Uh, I could sing or I could conduct. Now, I, I can't sing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, how's your voice? <laughs> I cannot sing. Yeah, many people in, in the opera world were blessed to my awful levels of singing. But conducting, that was a different thing. And it made me realise, actually, it was one of those kind of unspoken things in my head that had been there for a long time. I find it interesting that you mentioned organ playing and the, the multiple skills as an organist that can carry over into conducting. And I think in many ways those years playing the organ was, was kind of my preparation to get myself from the position of a soloist, which is a very lonely, isolated profession in many ways, uh, into, into a, a world, and an organ is its own orchestra. And, and it's, like, it's like you need about four or five different brains running at once in order to play it properly. Uh, so many things to think about and, and to interact with in the moment. Yeah. So preparation is key, but also so is being like really in the moment and flexible to respond to how an organ might sound in a minute, in, in a second. You know, you might press a key down, but you don't hear the sound for another second. Sometimes you don't hear it at all. Sometimes you just yeah. feel it on the ground. <laughs> really, really low sound. You just feel it in, in your internal organs. So, yeah, all of these, all of these kind of things, um, I think, were, it was really fertile ground for conducting and it had just been building this moment happened and I just knew this is it I I really want to give this I really want to give this everything yeah it sort of sounds like the path that you take I mean I think this is common for so many musicians but the path is unexpected and then something happens where you think oh my goodness how can I go on but obviously you have to take that path in order to end up somewhere amazing further down the line yeah yeah absolutely and then so for me, then it was like, well, I, I want to do this. How am I going to go about it? I obviously had a, a lot of um, you know, very thorough in education as a musician and a big career as an organist. So for me, it was not really what I had to bring to the music or my vision for the music. It was literally the practical skills of how to actually physically conduct. Yeah, like the technique, right? Yeah, and so I knew that I had to go and get technique somewhere. And I did a couple of summer schools that summer, uh, one in Italy in Siena, which was great, uh, and a, uh, one here in the UK. And I, I looked, I researched, I spoke to friends, you know, where was the best place in Europe to study conducting? And they, there were two places, basically, the Sibelius Academy in, in Finland or the Royal Academy of Music uh, in London. And I thought well, to myself, well, I'm in London, so I'll, I'll apply to the Academy. I mean, incredible chutzpah. I mean, I had literally no idea how to conduct. And so I applied and it was three days of auditions. I literally had no idea what I was doing with my arms, but I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew exactly what I wanted and how I could hear the music in my head. And somehow or rather, you know, I'm very grateful to this day that they, I guess they took a risk on me, that they saw the music was strong and actually what I needed was help in terms of technique. 
technique and communicating your ideas, the ideas which are there set in stone, but, you know, you just need something to convey. Yeah, exactly. A a way to communicate through body language, basically. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's like with organists, I find it amazing that the left and right hand independence kind of thing. I mean, I'm a cellist. I, I have that to an extent, but not on quite the same level, I imagine. The thing with organ is that you have feet as well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah, there are, there are kind of many, many different things going on all at once. Yeah. Now you're working with loads of ensembles, orchestras around the world, as you mentioned before, pre-lockdown, traveling all around the place. How do you gain an ensemble's trust when you're working with individual ensembles? And as you mentioned before, each orchestra is like its own organism. How do you approach each individual ensemble when they could be so different and they have different ideas of music making? Mm, That's a really good question, actually. I mean, it's it's very humbling, actually, working with with great orchestras because there's so much experience and and wisdom and and knowledge, collective knowledge there. Yeah, they collectively know so much. 80 players as one have this kind of history. And and we come in as conductors for the first time, never having interacted with them. Yeah, it's a a real conundrum, really, I guess, in a way. But uh, what I do, actually, is always music first. We're all here, we're all musicians because of our love and our passion uh, for music. So for me, a first rehearsal would be just walking in you know, obviously saying hello to the concert master and making a connection there, but going straight into the music and playing for as long as I, you know, playing through a piece. So say it was a Tchaikovsky symphony, maybe playing, actually for the most part, playing through the entire symphony. Oh, I love that. That's such a relief because <laughs> you, get, you do get some conductors that they micromanage every single bar and you just want to play it through because there's yeah. so much that you can understand from a conductor, from what a conductor wants and intends from just playing the music. Yeah, it works both ways. An orchestra needs to learn or, you know, interact with my language. And of, of course, there's kind of a universal, there are universal sort of semiotics, I guess, in conducting, which read a particular way for players. But there are also things that make me me or that make uh, Simon Rattle, Simon Rattle or, or whatever. So this can take a little while, a few minutes to get to know someone musically. And for me, this gives the best opportunity to understand how a particular orchestra works. Who are the key players? What is their musical ethos? What is their idea of playing together? How do they work as an entity? This idea of, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, birds flying overhead. This idea of entrainment, where birds flock naturally into formation without, I guess, thinking about it. Mm. And this element in, in orchestras whereby they're, they're together, often without even really consciously not trying, just listening and being in the moment and interacting in that in that really beautiful way. So by playing through a piece of music, first of all, yes, it's kind of like a, a getting to know you period. <laughs> yeah. Is it true that if you're trying to get an orchestra's attention on the podium, that you just put on a really strong Australian accent? <laughs> oh, that's made my day. Um, 
<laughs> that has literally made my day. Well, look, <laughs> it's a little more nuanced than that, but kind of as a concept, yes. It's fascinating because I find, I mean, obviously we can't perceive our own accents and I feel like mine is kind of a hybrid between English and Australian. But I know that when I'm on the podium, for some reason, the more English vowels don't tend to project back. If it's an orchestra of like 90 players and, you know, it, it is actually quite, it can be difficult to really project properly back to the, say, timpani or the trombones or whatever. The moment just that little bit of Australianism is just, just pushed up, the equivalent of 1 dB, basically, it's just that the voice comes more forward. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It, it projects so clearly and it's unmistakable what, what anyone is saying. So, yeah, I think it's a great technique and why not? I'd say, yeah, the vowels do tend to penetrate through a crowd. <laughs> they really do. I mean, they're, they're very forward and um, quite dart-like at times. So <laughs> it's a technique they don't teach you in conducting school. But for us Aussies or us half Aussies, it, yeah, it's part of our, our natural habitat so yeah you've got to use it i dare you the next time you you go to a new ensemble be like yeah how's it going yeah can we take it from the top please <laughs> do, you, do you want to know something really interesting actually um talking about language in that way last year i was in finland actually it was amazing we were doing pretty much an all it was an all sebelius program and there was one phrase in particular whereby the the players kind of let it drop at the end it just dropped and I kept saying to them please could we play this more like a question it, it needs it needs to have a kind of uplift you know, yeah. yeah exactly it, it please play it more like a question so this is the second time it's still dropping I'm like what am I doing wrong I'm showing it with my hands I've told them with words still doing it third time it's still happening and then the, the concert master said oh excuse me um what, what exactly do you mean by a question so oh, this is this is very philosophical. And so I stopped for a moment and, and I said, well, what, what, what would you consider? Like, ask me a question. And so one, one of the cellists asked just a random question, like, what did you eat for lunch today or something? And I noticed that at the end of the sentence, it didn't go up. And I said, this is, this is really fascinating because in Australia, when we ask a question, or even when we don't ask a question, <laughs> we lift the end of the sentence, we lift the end of the phrase. So, you know, in this case, how, how are you going? There's, there's, an, there's an uplift. It, it, it actually goes up almost an octave. It was, a it was one of the great moments, I think, in, in, all, in all rehearsals. For me, um, it was wonderful. So we had a discussion, actually, in the rehearsal about the differences between speaking, you know, so for example, Finnish, it was quite an international orchestra, it was quite a lot of Russian people as well, and the Australian intonation. And the moment that I, I spoke, spoke to them and gave them, you know, a kind of stock, stock phrase with an Australian accent and that lift, everything changed. Wow, it's such a light bulb moment, isn't it? But great that you managed to establish that because otherwise they just wouldn't have known what on earth you were talking about. Exactly. It was, it was like really frustrating and then just a simple thing fixed it up. I clearly need to be listening to more Australians. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't resist. <laughs> so do Finnish people, when they speak English, when they ask a question, do they just flatline it? It's hard to say, actually. I mean... This orchestra in particular, as I was saying, is really international. From what I experienced, um, and I don't speak Finnish, so I'm no expert here. And if anybody would like to ring in and tell me that 
this is incorrect. They're very welcome. But yeah, I experienced more, yeah, more of a sort of flatter topography. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Flatter typo- typography. I can't even say it. Brilliant. <laughs> and I suppose Kiwis have a little, can have a little bit of a lilt, but if you were to say the difference between a Kiwi and an Aussie accent, it's definitely lower in Tambra, a lot more from the throat. As a family, actually, we lived in Wellington for three years and definitely noticed that kind of lower lower register. Um, obviously, some of the vowels are a bit different, but yeah, the lower register in gen- general. Yeah, perhaps would be difficult to project over an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what have been some highlights in your conducting career to date? Tell me about some of your favourite performances that you've ever done. Oh, this is always such a hard question. Um, I think some of my most favourite performances have been at the proms. Uh, In the last few years, I've done projects for the proms in the Albert Hall three times now, I think. It's such an incredible building, you know, 6,000 people in it, five to 6,000 people, lots of people standing in the arena. There's a real buzz. There's a real buzz backstage. It's a very happy place. And so all of those performances have been, yeah, really, really exciting. Other performances, I, I guess, like literally everything. Every time you do lots of hard work in rehearsals, really focused work, and then everything's kind of ready to go. And then you get to the performance and it's like, I guess the quality of the performance is, is so natural. It's like waves in the sea. There's a kind of natural ebb and flow. It doesn't feel um, pushed, like real spontaneity. And this thing with orchestras where you give energy and they give back, you give a bit more and then, and then they give back. And there's a sense of risk taking, I guess. Yeah. And that's super thrilling. And there are, there are orchestras that I've, I work with, you know, quite regularly where, where that happens. I mean, LSO is amazing. Just, you know, the best. It's just such in-the-moment music making. Uh, it feels like literally like living, like breathing and being alive. Yeah, you can't replicate that in any other situation apart from no. live music. Oh, we can't really do that right now given the global situation. But that's the beauty of live performance. Yeah, for the audience being in a in a room in a hall wherever experiencing this something that will never happen again in that way it is an absolute one-off and you have to be there to fully um be immersed in it and sure there are radio broadcasts and things like that and that's fantastic as well but it's just not the same it's a one-off never going to happen again it's the atmosphere it's the ambience it's the collective engagement just knowing that the person next to you is experiencing the same thing and you're all in it together and it's just so exciting exactly I love that term actually collective engagement oh thanks that's actually from another podcast guest that I interviewed (laughs) a few months ago so I can't take credit oh don't we miss live performances when when will our next one be it's all very strange yesterday I had to record like pre-record an online recital, but it's very, very strange to sit in front of a video camera and you play everything through as you would do in a live performance, but there's no, there's no engagement with the audience. So when you're introducing your pieces, you're not talking to anyone really, and there's no applause. It's, a, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, certainly as a conductor, you can often feel the collective, or well, I can anyway, the collective energy almost on, on my back. Wow. If an audience is really listening and really invested in a performance, 
I mean, it's not scientific, right? But it's, or maybe it is, maybe we don't understand this yet, but it's like the quality of, well, the space changes, I guess. Yeah. The, an, an intense, listen, John Berger actually says in, in one of his early books on art, he says, the more we look intensely at a piece of art, at a painting, the more intensely it looks back at us. Mm. It's a very poetic way, I guess, of saying, you know, the more we're in the music, the more the audience can be in it with us. And that is actually a, it's a palpable feeling, this energy, I think. Yeah, it's an energy. I think it can manipulate the molecules in the room somehow. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I never actually thought about that before. Of course, the conductor has got to have their back to the audience. But this is something, as an instrumentalist, you see the audience. You can, you can see every reaction. But for you to feel it on your back, that's something I've never thought about before. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, as I mentioned before... I have a segment every episode called the wildcard question round. Yeah. And this is where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three choices. Oh, wow. How exciting. Oh, I'm glad you're excited. I'm actually quite nervous. Yeah, okay. It's okay. Well, I mean, the the thing that sort of dampens it is that you get to choose. So if there's anything that really terrifies you, you can just be like, nope. Veto. I was more nervous in, in the way of like wanting to choose the best question. Oh, right. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then, and then there's that thought of what could have been if I chose the other one. Right. What were the other possibilities? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So here are your choices. <laughs> These are tailored for you. So you have hobbies, butterfly edition, mm-hmm. pre-concert rituals, mm-hmm. and travel destinations. Mm. Well, this is, I mean, number one. I mean, there's, there's no question about this. Um, we could do an extra podcast on butterflies if you're interested, but let's maybe leave that for another time. Leave the, pod, the extra podcast, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I've never come across someone who's so passionate about butterflies before. So simple question to start you off with. Describe for me your favourite butterfly. Oh, many, 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 many favourite butterflies. But I would say that one of my, I'm going to narrow it down um, to the UK. Okay. So of the almost 60 native butterflies in the UK, there's one that is my particular favourite and it's very rare. It's a swallowtail and they only, you see them a lot in, in North America and in Europe, but this particular one in the UK, its habitat has been reduced so much that you can now only basically see it um, in Norfolk, in the Norfolk Broads. And it's a very shy, shy butterfly as well, beautiful. Um, so you can imagine um, bright yellow mm-hmm. and it's a swallowtail. So it has these long sort of um, tendrily things, short tendrils coming out from the bottom of its wings. And last time I saw it, it was two, three years ago, and I spent three days in the Norfolk Broads waiting. Wow. Waiting to see it. Did you know its routine? Were you expecting it to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I knew the time of year. I'd spotted some, uh, actually with a park ranger who who I bumped into at the time, had seen some little caterpillars 
underneath of some leaves. So we knew they were around uh, shortly and then came back. And yeah, the particular, they like a kind of milk thistle kind of plant. Um, so it was a case of finding the plant and just waiting very patiently. And when you found it, how did you react? I, it's just like the best thing ever. I mean, it's, I can only imagine what it would be like to look through a massive telescope and find a new planet or something oh. like that. But the, the joy of, of weight, you know, being so patient, sitting in nature, uh, really finding a spot where you hope you might catch them at a particular time, time of day. Yeah, it was, it was really, yeah, I almost cried. Oh. Hard work, but big rewards. Yeah, totally. What is it you love about butterflies? Uh, there are many, uh, many different elements. I think the first thing that first attracted me when I was a little girl was the, you know, as a child, we want to interact in a physical way. And I remember picking up a butterfly in, in Canberra, actually, and the orange scales came off onto my fingers and it was iridescent, the powdery scales. And I was just kind of, what was, you know, I thought, what is this magic dust? <laughs> and I became a bit obsessed with it actually and started, you know, collecting dead butterflies. It's a very, very normal hobby for a little, little child to do. Slightly morbid. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at school I, I did um, some work placement actually at the Science Institute, the CSIRO in the um, Department of Entomology of Insects. So it was something always very kind, I was always interested in them. Uh, I guess more latterly as, as an adult, uh, more recently as, as an adult, it's twofold really with butterflies. It's the colour and, you know, music is all about colour. I experience sound as colour. So colour for me is a very predominant aspect to my everyday life. Do you have synesthesia? I do. Ah, amazing. So you have colour parallels when you listen to music. Oh my gosh. Sound actually, but very sounds have, have colours. Yes, yeah, so there's that element with butterflies, but I think the most incredible thing is is the ephemerality of, of butterflies that you know, they often only live for a couple of weeks and they've been in this you know, pupae form, a caterpillar, and then suddenly they emerge with these extraordinary colours and you see them fleetingly more often than not. You know, moths, on the other hand, you know, they'll, they'll stop somewhere and they'll just kind of hunker down and, you know, they'll stay there for a while and you'll be like, oh, look, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a hawk moth or whatever. Those butterflies are you know, they're, they're flighty, they're flitting here and so on. So there's the, the real kind of in-the-momentness that I was talking about also with live performance. I feel so much with butterflies. That's so true. It's such a parallel, isn't it? It's like all that time, as you say, in the pupae stage, and then when they're released, they're just loving it, living life and flying <laughs> around and beautiful. And you've got to catch them while you can because it's one night only and then yeah. that performance has left town, you know, the tour's over. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think also it's really fascinating here in the UK looking at what butterflies were, say, common in the early, say, 1950s or 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And now what is the status of a particular butterfly in the UK and how these creatures have been massively affected by land use and, you know, urbanisation and so on. And what we can do to try and encourage butterflies to our gardens or even to the sides of roads and letting wildflowers grow and it's it's a reminder of of our status in the world i think yeah our our ephemerality and how we we share this planet yeah yeah 
with them. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I don't know what kind of answer I was expecting, but I think that's that's the best answer ever. Um, going back to synesthesia, I just want to ask, what colour is my voice? Oh, I, <laughs> I don't get a colour from your voice. Okay, okay, that's probably a good thing then. <laughs> okay, but like, for example, the sound of a cello. Yeah, so it, it's that's kind of a bit abstract. It would depend on its context. So I, I don't know, for example, I could give you an example like Rachmaninoff second piano concerto. There's that bit in the last movement where the horns come in and, and all of a sudden everything just goes. I remember every time I hear this piece, like literally every single time without fail, like clockwork, I get this sun rush of vivid kind of mid-green every single time. It's one of those things, if you grow up with something, we were talking, it's actually really nice circular and we've gone a full circle here. You grow up with something, language, playing music. We, we don't, as humans, question what we have naturally. Of course, it's your normal, isn't it? Exactly. So for me, there's, there's I guess, with the synesthesia, also an, an emotional element in that particular feelings have associated colours. And that's also linked in with music as well. Mm. I've been meaning to do this for ages, actually, to sit down and try and work out whether there's some kind of schematic format for how the, yeah, how I experience colours. And it's, it's not, I think, with most synesthetes, certainly for music, it's not always just one colour. I mean, those people who experience synesthesia would say numbers or words, from what I understand. I don't have that myself, but from what I understand, you know, five might be blue six might be yellow or whatever, but it's not a combination of colours, which I think sound does afford. Yeah. But what an amazing parallel to have, as you say, like sound is colour. And when you're making music, you're communicating and with language, sound, colour, so many different things on your palette. Yeah. And I think these things, that, according to research, many, many children are actually synesthetes. And so there are these things, I guess, that we lose as we become adults, and even just in terms of just how we are, our philosophy and so on, just being able to interact with the world and also the natural world, you know, butterflies, whatever it is, in, in, with the awe and curiosity and, I guess, immersive interest that a child has is, is really what, what music can bring to us as well. Thank you so much on your insights as your life as a conductor and your musical approaches I'm waving my hands around no one can see this <laughs> like there's some good conducting moves there oh thank you oh wow maybe it's maybe it's another avenue I'll go down one day <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the podcast remotely and taking the time out of your day to share your insights it's been an absolute pleasure where can people follow you to see what you're up to these days social media um twitter facebook instagram I have a website Come to my concerts next year. Yes. Very exciting things, actually super exciting things planned. We're, we're doing the waiting period at the moment and then hopefully we, we emerge next year. Like a butterfly emerging from the poupée stage. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Real pleasure. was Jessica Cottis. It was fascinating to chat to her and I hope you found it enjoyable too. 
This week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me contribution comes from Karina Connor, who had a cello student in southwest London. Music College Didn't Prepare Me for the time a pupil put pasta inside his cello. Cooked pasta that he didn't want to eat. One of his parents put a note in his notebook. Please can you show him how to get the pasta out of the cello? Not only was I mortified that there was food bouncing around in the instrument, but that the parent expected I would be properly prepared for a scenario as such. I can't remember how the pasta was eventually extracted. I think it dried and I shook it out. Some remained and I decided it wouldn't do any harm. (laughs) I mean, I've heard stories about people cleaning their instruments with rice. Uncooked, not cooked rice but I've never tried it myself because it just feels a bit wrong to put anything into the F-holes. Grow up. Maybe it works. Maybe you could combat the pasta by adding rice. And if that doesn't work, add noodles. If that doesn't work, add couscous. And if that doesn't work and you've eliminated all the garbs in your pantry, well, then you've just made yourself a lovely new percussion instrument. Thanks, Karina, for that story. Remember, if you have something that Music College didn't prepare you for that you'd like shared or discussed on the podcast, then let me know at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Huge thanks to Jessica Cottis for such a wonderful chat. And as always, thank you for listening. Do get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at As It Comes Pod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Indeed, thank you for continuing to do so. I will chat to you soon and take good care. Bye. Thanks, Karina, for that story. Remember, if you have something that... uh, Thanks, Karina, for that story. Remember, if you have something that...